transportation equipment industry, broadly defined, includes all manufacturers of road, rail, water, and air vehicles, making up the largest component of the U.S. manufacturing sector, constituting 3% of value added in the economy in 2019 when including related industries such as steel and petroleum. It has declined from 6% of the economy in 1955, however, as American passenger car manufacturers were overtaken by the Japanese in the 1980s and units produced, with domestic production peaking in 1979 at 10 million and plunging to 2 million by 2019. Much of this decline has been replaced by foreign imports from overseas, as well as the outsourcing of parts and assembly plants to Mexico under NAFTA. The big three American automakers, GM, Ford, and Chrysler, now focus primarily on light truck manufacturing. Tonight, we discuss with an automotive insider how the industry got to where it is today and how, going forward, the prospects for electrification and autonomous vehicles are set to change it. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Today we're joined by a very special guest, uh, Mike from the automotive industry, uh, as well as my wonderful co-hosts, Hank and Hans. Uh, everyone, please say hello. Hello. Good evening, everyone, or whenever you uh, go on your godforsaken commutes. Hello, yeah. thank you. Yeah, so Mike and I exchanged a few emails when we were, um, I guess, just sharing some common interests after we did a show on the Bethlehem Steel uh, Company. And obviously, Mike is involved in another very large or very, uh, very industrial uh, business in the uh, world, and it's one of the largest industries out there in terms of employment, in terms of share of um, economic multipliers. It's, it's sort of hard to, to estimate how many people are directly involved in the the industry, uh, but uh, suffice it to say, when you create a car, you not only employ people at the assembly line, but you also employ people at the parts suppliers, the, the tire makers, the electronics, all the dealerships, all the service stations, all the repairmen. It's, it's an incredibly impactful industry, and it's one of the reasons I've always admired it for um, building up a, a segment of the society that is uh, sort of going away in, in many ways uh, with regard to like the middle class, having a lot of, a lot of opportunities for normal people to get a job, whether you know, they're fabricating something in... Uh, in a factory setting or fixing something themselves or modifying. Uh, it's one of the cooler industries with regard to that, uh, that aspect of inclusiveness in a, uh, industrial economy. Um, but today there, there have been a lot of, uh, changes, uh, in the past, probably 10 or 15 years with the, uh, worries about decline of oil, uh, 
the dem demand for more electric vehicles for environmental reasons and other reasons. And it's a changing landscape as it always has been because it's uh, it's not only you know your country, it's every other country wants to participate in this industry for reasons uh, just mentioned. Uh, so, uh, so Mike, how did you get involved, and what are your what are your thoughts on kind of where we've come from, and how does it uh, how does it relate to today? How has the industry uh, maybe changed in, in your lifetime? Oh, uh, pretty big question. I mean, I got involved. I've been working in the industry my entire working life in one form or another. Um, some of that has been um, with racing and motorsports applications, and some of it has been for um, uh, suppliers and manufacturers and working with companies to try to try doing development and in factory setting. So, um, you know, that's kind of my background. Um, there has been a lot of changes. I remember walking in factories years ago and the amount of robots there was very minuscule uh, with what they did. Um, and now some of the automation level in some of these facilities is outstanding. Uh, it'll just blow your mind when you look at it. Well, in, in your part of the the industry, you you probably have seen whether it's a, a drive for reduction of of employment, or I shouldn't say employment, but a drive for efficiency. Uh, you've probably seen things uh, akin to uh, continuous improvement, which was a big thing in the 80s, uh, coming from the Japanese in particular. Uh, they call it Kaizen. Uh, Toyota was very famous for pioneering uh, some of the methodologies around that, the Toyota production system is typically considered one of the better ones for process improvements. Um, but the, the automation thing is, is kind of interesting because uh, recently Elon Musk has admitted more than once that when they first tried to uh, put robots into the Tesla factory, uh, they overdid it. And they got to the point where they actually had to start taking stuff out and training people to do the job. So where do you see that balance, uh, and, and why do you think it has, um, it has gotten so far? Because if you go back to the origins of the industry, uh, a lot of the people that would make these things, they were really actually involved in sort of loosely related mechanical businesses. Bicycle makers would, would even try to make their own quadricycles, they called them. Henry Ford was very famous for that. He uh, stayed up uh, obsessively for for nights and, and, and weeks and years and months uh, to try to perfect a, a, little, uh, a little vehicle that would, that would move. And it's, it was kind of a cottage industry, and it was very labor-intensive once Henry Ford especially started building the assembly line system, uh, possibly apocryphally inspired by the meatpacking industry in Chicago, but... Uh, nonetheless, it became a, a, a massive employer. Uh, so how did we get from, from millions of people working in the industry to, um, given the number of, of cars output per person, uh, 
such a, a higher productivity industry. Has that been a good thing uh, for the country? Has it been good things for consumers, maybe for the companies at least? Uh, but would you say that it's inevitable uh, or, or is there reaching a point where people like uh, Elon Musk are actually admitting that maybe that we've gone too far with that? I actually think that we might be close to one of the highest points of automation, um, at least on the on the, when it comes to line equipment. Um, and you can go look at there are videos available of uh, different factories and you can see some of this and you will always see people supervising the machines and people doing checks on what there is. There are some jobs that human beings are better at than machines. Primarily right now where you see robotic line equipment is for dangerous work, extremely heavy work, or for extreme precision work. But whenever there's extreme precision work, there's always going to be a person following behind that machine to verify what it did. Um, you you can teach a robot what the specs are, but if your parts are slightly out of alignment, it's not going to be able to read that. So there's always a place for people, um, and there will always be people on there. Now, I know that uh, Cummins, for instance, has... Um, uh, cylinder head manufacturing lines where the only places that people touch touch the parts are loading them into the line, flipping the head, and taking them off to do the production check. Um, whereas there are other manufacturers, you know, you take a look at um, what Chrysler's doing in like their transmission plants, and there's a lot of human interaction and a lot of um, individual part placement and work done by people so you know th there's only so much that you can do with a robot they will never replace people I heard the example of uh, tesla having huge problems with their gaskets uh like the cars just leak or at least uh i don't know if the cars in general leak but they seem to leak at a much higher rate than other cars and it's because squishy humans with their sensitive squishy fingers are really good at feeling when a gasket is actually properly sealed uh and i don't remember what the mechanical fixture is called but it's uh very difficult to design a robot cost effectively that can get the gasket in there and you know press on it in such a way that it actually straightens out every time or at least tesla hasn't figured it out uh, yeah i can i can definitely see that being a problem i've been under a few tests here and there um so there's, there's probably some accuracy in this statement um you know one of the other big drivers for automation one you know on the domestic side um it's to limit workers getting hurt and to make a better working environment and as we to increase the precision of the actual components, which is why engines run longer now. Cars last longer than they did. You know, we're not talking about the 1970s here where you had to check your plugs and every 2,000 miles or so. Um, 
But, you know, another big part of it is that we're putting plants in other countries where the workforce isn't the same as it is here or as it is in Europe. And because of that, there is a lot of work going on in the back end to get the line equipment to the point where almost anyone can do it with minimal training. Um, there's a lot of turnover in some of these plants in Mexico um, and in other places. So the idea is you want a very user-friendly, a very uh, operator-friendly um, piece of equipment that you can spend a little bit of time with a guy, get him to know what he's doing, and to get it in there and so that he can work safely um, and produce good parts. How good those parts are is uh, another part of another discussion. But would you say that the the role of the the person has has gone down overall? Uh, we will most likely always find applications for people within the factory to do things that machines obviously cannot do or cannot do very well. But my impression is that the uh, and as you've stated earlier, the the drive for automation has displaced quite a few people. And there was a lot of talk back in the 90s in particular, from what I remember, uh, because I think the 80s, the 70s and the 80s were more concerned with trade. It was uh, coming from imports from places like uh, Japan in particular, but also Germany. Uh, but in the 90s, I remember a lot of talk about uh, the benefits of globalization. And there, even though there will be displacement, and this is what Ross Perot was, was fighting against, uh, of having the free trade that was actually sending a lot of those factories to Mexico that used to be previously owned and operated by American companies and, and workers. Um, there was a lot of talk by the Clinton administration about retraining people, uh, but I don't know if they've actually been retrained. Uh, again, it's hard to get hard numbers on this. Uh, but I think in the Bush administration, they basically admitted that they were they were losing um, a lot of workers uh, to to trade, and they stopped counting. It got so bad, uh, and that's that's just from trade. But from from automation as well, um, you know, it, there was a lot of talk uh, about you know the lights out factory concept. I believe uh, General Motors actually may have actually tried to do that at one point. I don't think they know they they long uh, anymore do that, uh, but places like China, um, where a lot of people think that the uh, the employment opportunities are better for uh, industrial workers, uh, they've even gone so far as to create uh, factories that assemble electronics without any workers at all inside of them. Foxconn is one of the companies that has uh, declared that they want to become leaders in this, where they're buying. Uh, millions of robots to do the work that previously were done by uh, many workers, um, if uh, if not millions, but at least hundreds of thousands. So, uh, are are we actually able to retrain people? Because um, my impression is that if your if your skill set is uh, putting a putting a door uh, onto a hinge on uh, a body of a car, and you've been doing that for 30 years, there's not a whole lot else that you're going to be able to realistically do. Um, but I could be wrong. But have you heard about uh, prospects for retraining, or do you think that it's it's really kind of a dwindling amount of people that can work in this industry? The retraining issue is 
something that I think a lot of people give lip service to. And I don't know how much that actually there's retraining for other industries. You know, people switch jobs all the time and there's always going to be a struggle with that. Um, People who have worked in the automotive industry, if you've been working on a line for 20, 30 years and you've suddenly found yourself laid off, you're probably not going to find a similar, you know, an exact job, but there are always other automotive companies that are hiring and that work experience of just being able to deal with uh, all the tools and equipment that are around um, does work out. I mean, the automotive industry is pretty good at moving people around to find where they're good on the line. So most individuals are cross-trained to a certain extent anyways. Um, as far as new people coming in and there being less workers, I don't know how true that is. Um, I think that that's going to be a big call on where future plants are built. Um, but there's a lot of back end work for putting together a vehicle, especially on the corporate side, the engineering side. Um, and you know, if you're somebody who's figured out, you know, who's willing to get in and say, I'm willing to work on these robots, there's always going to be job opportunities. If you're somebody who says, I want to learn how to make an inverter work, well, that's going to be an integral part in every car in the next 30 to 40 years. So there are always going to be jobs in this industry and there will always be opportunities in this industry. Where they are is going to be the question. Let's uh, let's take a, a step back in time. Uh, I think the the post-war period is probably one of the more interesting periods in the autom- American automotive industry because of the just the, the cataclysmic changes that had just occurred. And one of the the statistics that stood out to me. Uh, was and many people have, have already you know, talked about this at, at nauseum about how the American economy itself was was producing um, effectively half the world's output after the war uh, because of relative differences, obviously in industrialization, but also because the other parts of the industrialized world were were flattened uh, from war. Uh, but one of the things that stood out to me also was that General Motors Corporation alone produced, I believe, half the, the cars in the entire planet. Uh, and that, sh- that share has shrunk significantly uh, to today. Uh, but you know, before we get to that, um, uh, Mike, what, what is your, your understanding of the post-war era in the 1950s with the interstate highway system being built, uh, all of the, the growth in the suburbs, driving demand for cars, uh, the somewhat... Uh, incorrectly attributed, but nonetheless, uh, apropos quote of the CEO of General Motors saying, what's good for General Motors is good for America. Uh, what was that time like? Uh, how would you characterize that in American history in general, but also in particular the automotive industry? Well, <laughs> um, I'm definitely somebody who thinks that that, uh, that was probably the height of at least American design. Um, not necessarily machine design, but, uh, 
just in the aesthetic. So I, I'm a bit of a fan of that period. Um, the automotive industry was in definitely an interesting place there. You know, there were we were the only industrial country that didn't have bombed out factories. So we kind of had an opportunity there. Um, the downside was is that we spent all this work to rebuild the rest of the world and then we the automotive industry never expected the rest of the world to actually produce cars to compete with. There was definitely a feeling of I think that that's actually where the height of the um, adversarial nature between the unions and management really came in and the large amount of the workforce needed to put out half the cars on the planet um, you know, caused a giant balloon in the job opportunity, um, which really laid the groundwork not just for the success of some of these businesses and how they built themselves up, but also for their own failures later with the pension crises and some of their other um, financial issues. You know, GM was running around at the time buying up anything that had a motor in it and anything else. Um, you know, I used to have a refrigerator made by GM. Um, so they were really pushing to not just be automotive manufacturers, but the manufacturers of the world at the time. And they really got themselves overextended. Um, and I think that we lost a lot of good companies through those mergers, but well, if you go to Detroit, which was and arguably still is the automotive capital of America uh, in the fifties, it was it was called uh, I believe the Paris of the Midwest, and the contrast with it today is quite stunning. Uh, where the, the factories have just about all been taken out, I believe Chrysler still has something there, but the the Packard plant. Uh, which I believe just went out of business. It wasn't bought by GM or anything. Uh, is still there, and it's it's one of the most uh, depressing and, and also uh, haunting and, and instructive pieces of industrial history, where you look at how a once great city can fall on hard times in a relatively short period of time. That probably went from you know, its peak in maybe the 60s to some really uh, awful, uh, awful demographic and uh, economic shifts uh, by the 1980s. I mean, this is where they filmed RoboCop, uh, and it was it was sort of a post-apocalyptic version of Detroit. But the signs were there that things were were going wrong. Uh, so, you know, I, I've I've spoken many times about what I think happened, but what do you think led to the decline? Um, uh, you know, there were other companies involved, Ford and Chrysler, the big three, GM, Ford, Chrysler. Uh, they used to be extremely successful and, and profitable companies, but by the 70s and 80s, they were struggling. So how would you say, um, or what would you say was was the main causes of that? Well, it wasn't just Detroit. Um all of these fat, uh, companies, they had built factory towns all over the Midwest. GM famously had several towns where they had built their own 
power stations just to supply their factories separate from the uh, city utility. Um, they And they became very big institutions in those towns. And you can see that all of those companies heavily invested in those towns um, during the 80s and then in the 90s there was a sharp decline and then they were gone and there are now towns all across the midwest that you can be driving through part of the town and you take a corner and there's suddenly either giant concrete lots as far as the i can see or the city's been proactive and has torn up the foundations and has planted grass um what caused the decline is, you know, there, the easy answer is to say NAFTA, but that was just the escape valve that that the yeah. manufacturers used. And, and that didn't happen until the 90s, and so this, this decline right. had been going on for quite was, some time. Part of it was the, uh, I think... Many of these manufacturers had overleveraged themselves by jumping into too many industries that they didn't have any business with um, being involved in, um, and so they so there was a lot of money lost in that. Um, but there was also, you know, the rising rising labor costs um, for U.S. workers versus you know, the lower costs of labor in, say, Japan, which was actually a big country that really dealt the big blow. Um, and part of that is, you know, the you had places like Japan where the government, as much as they said they weren't subsidizing some of that, they there was a lot of backroom workarounds for certain things, which kept those labor rates low, which allowed um, Japanese cars to come in at a very competitive price. Um, you combine that in with the oil crisis, and instantly the family budget doesn't go very far. And your 64 Impala uh, doesn't get that great a gas mileage. So you start looking around. Um, yeah, the, the Japanese were sort of case studies in industrial policy, and many people criticized Japan in the 90s for having overly uh, strict regulations and involvement of the government once Japan started having problems. Um, we've talked about uh, this book, uh, Princes of the Yen, and some of that had to do with what the, the Americans had done in retaliation against uh, the Japanese. Hopefully, we'll we'll get into that more later in a, in a later episode. Uh, but the economic growth statistics of Japan prior to the 90s were truly unmatched uh, throughout the rest of the world. I think until China, there had no been no other country that had grown as quickly as them. They were they were clocking about nine percent a year annually in GDP increases, and a lot of that had to do with their industrialization. Uh, and their export-led economy, and much of that was organized through this organization called uh, the Ministry of Trade and Industry, MIDI, and they've renamed it to the Ministry of the Economy, Trade and Industry, MEDI, today, but it's, it's the same group. 
And the, uh, the goal of, of this organization was to, to strengthen Japanese uh, economic development uh, through direct targeting of industries using financial incentives and basically just direct uh, orders from MIDI to the banks to allocate funds to targeted industries. And the automotive uh, industry was particularly cited as being one that was uh, crucial, um, partly for reasons of, of warfare as well. This goes back to even before World War II, where they were actually subsidizing uh, Japanese automakers when they noticed that the, uh, the Ford Motor Company was selling Model Ts at an incredible rate. Uh, they had a, a big earthquake in Japan called the Great Kanto Earthquake in the early 1900s, if I... Uh, if I have that right, and the the government was giving um, the company that became Nissan uh, 2,900 yen, just flat cash, uh, for every truck that they sold, uh, which was what they were competing against with the Model T. The Model T was effectively a, a very small truck, and the Model T was selling for only 2,200, so Ford was only getting a uh, $2,200 check and that doesn't even account for all their costs. And the Japanese uh, company, Nissan, the predecessor to Nissan, was getting, before even the customer paid them anything, the government gave them 2,900 yen, so a, a good amount more, almost 50% more than what uh, Ford was getting uh, from just the customers. And so there was a tremendous amount of, of subsidies that went into developing this industry. And today the Japanese are are not the largest. China is actually the largest. Uh, but until China uh, had its rise, uh, Toyota became the largest uh, automotive manufacturer in the world, surplanting um, planting GM. And I believe the sort of 2010 time frame, give or take a few years. And the Japanese have been tremendous uh, automotive uh, producers ever since the, the government and Toyota, Honda, and to a lesser extent Nissan have been uh, really working hard to, to do what they've done. And they're still around. They're still pretty good at it. Um, but it, what's interesting to me also is that the Americans did bounce back eventually. And so before we get to that, maybe I just want to give a couple of... Um, so you mentioned the oil crisis uh, in the 70s when OPEC stopped selling oil basically to the West for supporting Israel. Uh, that... I think it was some crazy amount, like four times uh, increase in the price of oil. And that just murdered the American automakers because uh, American automotive companies were very famous for building large vehicles. The Japanese were building much smaller ones. Uh, for historical reasons, that's how it worked out. But when the oil crisis happened, the Japanese just started selling their cars like crazy because if you have a smaller vehicle, obviously you don't need as much fuel to, to move a smaller, uh, smaller car, it's just physics. And so they were very popular. And, uh, and also what, what also came about in the 70s was uh, the environmental concerns and the discovery that smog was produced by automotive emissions. Uh, there was a researcher out of uh, Southern California uh, that actually took an industrial freezer, took some Santa Monica air, uh, and basically just put it through the cooler and condensed all of the particulate matter in the air 
and produced these horrific like, jars of just sludge that were literally coming right out of the air. And then you could chemically analyze them to identify that they, yes, indeed, were coming from the emissions from the tailpipe. And so once that was really proven, uh, California in particular became a big leader in regulating automotive emissions because in places like Los Angeles where these are these big mountains that surround the Los Angeles basin, a lot of that stuff gets trapped and it just accumulates and is really bad for you health-wise. There's nitrous oxide, there's sulfur, um, so it's not good and you could, you could fairly clearly identify the health uh, consequences. So what happened was they, they started requiring reductions in emissions. And the Japanese, coming out of the war and, and also being encouraged by their government, they really wanted to start selling to places like California uh, and compete against the Americans uh, because they saw an opportunity there. And for whatever reason, the, the Japanese uh, culture is, is just, they're, they're more willing to just beat themselves up if they have to, uh, whether it takes more engineering or hard, hard work or... Uh, just discipline to get the job done, they saw that as an opportunity for them. Whereas the Americans, they basically, they dispatched their lawyers. And they didn't want to actually invest in the engineering it took to actually come up with the emissions reductions, which the Japanese were able to do. Uh, things like the catalytic converter, uh, may, may I don't actually know if the uh, Japanese invented that, but the engine efficiencies were really coming out strong from places like Honda, uh, and the Americans really just, uh, GM, uh, said, you know, we, instead of sending engineers, we sent lawyers. Uh, there was a GM exec that admitted that. And so I think that was a very interesting difference between the cultures of Japan and America, whereas the engineering uh, profession was much more highly, uh, highly compensated or at least uh, recognized in Japan. Uh, whereas in America, the lawyer culture is, is much more prevalent. And I think we, we've seen the results of that you know, on the economic front. Uh, so I, I, w I would lean on the side of the Japanese. But, um, you know, the, the Americans have turned themselves around. But I, I would say the 70s were, the, were the, the depths. And so I would be very interested to hear, Mike, how you think the Americans have done that, um, if you agree with that, that assessment. Yeah, I mean, the 70s are really when we had the low point, which was the Vega. Um, and that's actually a story. Uh, where. That actually shows just how reluctant. Um, for change some of the people involved in the industry was, you know, famously, um, Chevy had been working on, they, they had, you know, their new products division working hard on a bunch of new cars. And suddenly big GM comes in and said, well, here's the car and here's the engine and here's what we're going to do. And no one at Chevy wanted to do it. It wasn't their car at the time. Um, Chevy was just building their own engines and Pontiac was building their own engines. And every different branch from GM had their own design teams and their own designs. And this was the first time that GM said, no, we're going to build common platforms, build common engines. Um, it was such a problem that the engineers working on it just kind of half-assed it. And that 
the attitude actually um, spread out to the workers and you actually saw workers um, actively sabotaging the cars. This is that's the car where the famous stories of uh, finding beer cans in inside of the door panels comes from. It comes from the Vega. Um, so that was a low point, and you would have thought that at the same time, this is when uh, the Japanese were really hammering the motorcycle industry, that GM would have taken a notice, but nobody paid any attention. Um, and it took a lot of years to get things back into an even keel. Um, one of the big things that really got it back was the big three focused on what started focusing on what they did well. Um, a lot of that really was they stopped competing against companies on playing fields where they felt behind the game. Um, and they worked on, you know, we, we we're seeing a resurgence now in big engines and in big cars and in big SUVs. Um, because that's something that Americans actually want. Um, and we've gotten the engineering to the point where we can make those extremely efficiently. Um, you know, the stories from the 80s and the 90s where guys were ripping their emission systems off just to be able to drive the thing at the speed limit, uh, those days are long gone. Your emission system actually doesn't really, doesn't really cut your power at any point now. Uh, catalytic converters... We have some pretty good designs on them that are pretty high flow. Um, there's no reason to really rip all that junk off. Um, we've just, they actually sat down and did the homework. And that's, I think that's the big key is that America and the automotive industry is a place where they can do the job once they decide they want to. And getting them to want to is the hard part. Do you think that the industry needed a kick in the ass, basically? Or would it have been possible, like many of the uh, other countries, to protect the American companies from this competition, yet still have some of the improvements that have been made? I think they definitely needed a kick in the ass to a certain degree. Um, but I think that actually they would have been better served to have done that with at least a certain level of protections involved. Um, so where would you but, say, guess, like, so the uh, financial crisis is sort of a loose analogy I might make, but the, um, the 08, 09 depths of you know, the financial banking system falling apart in New York, really a lot of people point to the, uh, the Treasury Department, uh, Federal Reserve, allowing uh, Lehman Brothers to fall apart. And after that, they basically started bailing everybody out. But the first to go was Bear Stearns. And that was a warning sign, and Dick Fold at Lehman was kind of an arrogant dude who in many ways resembles a lot of how the automotive guys uh, back in Detroit used to talk. Uh, I've, I've heard him talk, and I wasn't super impressed. Uh, but it... Uh, it serves to wonder, you know, we've had a lot of financial reforms. I mean, I'm still very skeptical, but we haven't had uh, quite the same problems that we had in the subline mortgage lending uh, arena uh, since that collapse. 
And one could argue that having the collapse to begin with was what allowed the industry to reform. Uh, but some people do say that uh, allowing the whole thing to happen in the first place was, was not necessary. Um, so it's interesting. Would you say that there are any particular companies, like AMC was bought by Chrysler. Chrysler was also bailed out at one point during the Carter administration. What would you say in particular, if you have any thoughts, uh, that were good moves and bad moves vis-a-vis uh, -vis industrial policy coming from the U.S. government towards the automotive industry? Well, I mean, <laughs> uh, I... You know, the automotive industry has always been hamstrung when it comes to the government because while there are definitely people in the government that want to be protectionist and to help the automotive industry, uh, at the same time, you also have the image that the more you help the automotive industry, that you're on the side of management versus the unions. And so, and there's there's been an adversarial nature baked into that cake for so long that, um, you know, I don't think that the government knows, really knows how to approach that industry. Um, and, you know, the, you know, the, the pension systems and a lot of these union obligations are what really got the automotive industry into trouble multiple times. Um, and that's been probably the big killer of several of these brands and these companies. Where the yep. government go, I don't know. <laughs> I've heard the analogy that the uh, automotive sector in the United States post-war was basically acting uh, sort of like uh, contemporary, or I guess it's a little bit uh, dated now, but say early 2000s uh, startup mode, where they were growing so fast and they were accumulating uh, so much capital and working out all of these uh, systems to the extent that they were not at all focused and probably shouldn't have been on things like cost control, really optimizing uh, their uh, their sort of design and manufacturing paradigms to be these uh, perpetual companies that have to support products uh, and product development out for 50, 60, 70, 100 years. And eventually they sort of fell into the disruption trap where, you know, their growth was in some sense sustainable, but not the uh, not all the exploits that they had glommed onto in order to uh, fuel that growth. So it's really easy if you're if your production line depends on having like several thousand people all cooperating and not going out of their way to shut it down, you want really friendly labor relations. And the easiest way to do that is to make sure that your compensation is very heavily backweighted uh, so that everybody has incentives to toe the line uh, for the entire length of their career. And so you end up with these huge pension obligations that end up destroying your future, uh, your future ability to be competitive on labor costs. The same thing with uh, some of the, you know, the bulky steel monstrosities that are right, very fuel heavy. Because why would you worry about fuel consumption? It's, it's really cheap if you build the car that you already have designed that has that in mind, and your entire design pipeline takes that into account. 
then you can build a lot more cars than if you're obsessing in 1950 or whatever when gas is a nickel uh comes with a free oil change uh, about how to make a fuel efficient car so i mean there's a certain path dependency here and you can argue that the job of the executives is to actually see these things coming and to make the companies a little bit more future proof but i feel like you can understand how they fell into uh some of these traps and uh, you know, you can sort of sympathize with their arguments, uh, like Chrysler's uh, arguments, that um, effectively they needed a bailout um, because of uh, the government policies that had encouraged the situation in the first place. Yeah, that was that was Lee Iacocca's line. He sort of says, we, we need a bailout because you bailed us in. You threw a bunch of uh, environmental regulations onto us. Uh, you opened us up to unfair trade practices, basically. Uh, and I, I would agree more with the second one rather than the first one. I do think the Japanese had a better approach regarding uh, environmental improvements. You know, I mean, you look, your job is to create a quality product. And if your product is discovered to actually be making people sick, you, you need to step up. And you can't just blame the government for recognizing that. Uh, but what I would say is that, you know, from a national security standpoint, from an, uh, a sociological uh, just having a stable society standpoint, it, it does make sense to have industrial policy that does encourage uh, employment and uh, development of a domestic industry and protecting that industry from uh, unfair competitors. And so the whole concept of free trade is that, okay, if, if I'm good at, at making, uh, making cars and you're good at making, uh, making corn, which is basically what the United States does, and they, they decided to you know, let the Japanese make some cars. That's fine, uh, but in, you still see this today with the trade going on in, uh, in Asia. The, the Asians don't like to import more than they export. They're mercantilists, and this is what the European powers used to do. And it was uh, little old Adam Smith that basically criticized this whole concept that you, know, you don't necessarily get the best outcomes if you're always trying to beggar uh, thy neighbor was the sort of phrase with these uh, protective tariffs because you sort of create these very lazy industries domestically and you're overall going to be very inefficient because if the guy down the road can do 100 times better than you at this and you really suck at it, uh, but you're 100 times better than him at another thing. If you both do the thing that you're 100x at and you trade, you're basically going to have uh, 100 times the wealth. And if you try to do the thing that you suck at, or may maybe uh, you're going to have at least twice as much because let's say you, you have to spend half your time. And this is going way back to Economics 101, so bear with me. I'll try to do it real quick. But if you've got two hours to spend and one hour is spent on the thing that you suck at and one hour is spent on the thing that you're really good at. If you can do 100 units in, in let's say, two hours, uh, and if you only have one hour to do it, you're going to create 50, 50 uh, units. Now, if you do the thing that you suck at, you're going to create one unit in that time. So you have 51. Now, if you do the thing, the two hours that you're really good at uh, for that whole time, you're going to have 100 created. And if you go to the guy that is also doing the same thing and you trade for the stuff that you don't really need, your, your wealth is basically going to be 100 versus 50. And so you can see there are benefits to trade. Uh, but the problem, what happened was that, and China is doing this today, and Japan did it and still does it, but they're a little bit more 
willing to negotiate with the Trump administration because Trump basically puts their feet to the fire. A lot of the previous administrations wouldn't do that. The Japanese would say, okay, we'll, we'll sell you some cars uh, and uh, maybe we'll, we'll buy some, some steak from you. But they wouldn't actually do it. They really wouldn't. Um, and so they would end up accumulating. And to this day, J Japan has actually the largest amount of U.S. Treasuries worldwide. I, I don't remember the exact number, but it's over a trillion dollars. And that's all because we've been running a trade deficit with them for 50 years. Uh, and that, that's real wealth, and that, that is a, a sort of relative standing that they have over the United States, on paper at least. Uh, but not only that, they've, they've built up a skill set within their, their company. And this is where industrial policy sort of disagrees with uh, laissez-faire economic classical economics, is that, okay, great, if you're really good at making corn and you suck at cars, then I guess you'll be more wealthy if you just make corn and, and buy the cars. Uh, but what happens is if company or countries try to do a mercantilist trade policy against you while you're trying to be a free trader and they're not, they're really going to have a financial leg up over you. And that's what Japanese have. And in addition well, to that, yeah, it's, a, it's, a the, it's the capital accumulation. It's and, the, and it's the, the ability to in the industrial base, right, which and we've those lost. create network effects. Yes. So suddenly it becomes easier for uh, new domestic manufacturers, even in unrelated industries, to pop up. Well, this is this goes to a, a sort of topic that I wanted to ask uh, Mike here, and that's on the topic of capital investment. Um, at the outset, would you say that? Uh, the automotive industry, American automotive industry, has made a lot of poor decisions from like a, a large capital investment point of view. Uh, I was reading an article actually about the Lordstown riots in, in the Vegas, and there was a long article in um, QZ, which is occasionally good. And here's a, here's one section from this article: uh, GM contributes continue to lavish spending on big capital investments, confident that the secret to competitiveness lay in replacing humans and technology. But as in Lordstown, the spending bore little fruit, as automotive analyst Marianne Keller recounted in her 1989 book, Root Awakening. One GM executive observed that between 1980 and 1985, the company shelled out an eye-popping $45 billion in capital investment. Despite that spending, its global market share rose by but a single percentage point to 22%. For that same amount of money, we could have bought Toyota and Nissan outright, said the executive, which would have instantly bumped GM's market share to 40%. Um, so it seems like what I was kind of getting in some of my research was that in the 80s and 90s in particular, there was this kick of automation that became very popular. And the idea was that GM could, and the other large automotive manufacturers and um, even other companies and other industries that we talked about, like GE, could slowly whittle down the human element, uh, increase productivity, lower prices, um, and somehow also gain market share. But none of those things happened, and they had the added uh, detriment of eroding an entire genera future generation sort of um, – uh, capital investment and training. And I'm wondering if you kind of agree with that perspective and if you know, you've seen that happen sort of in real time where the company makes a poor investment that doesn't have any of the intended consequences and then they also lose out on keeping workers sort of well-trained in the long run. 
yes and no. I mean, you know, you look, you bring up GM, and they're famous for actually having. They used to have their own engineering school, where you know you'd go to college at GMU, and every other semester you'd actually be in a plant working. So they actually were really good for a long time at training the next generation of engineers and workers. Um, but yeah, debacles like Jesus. Lordstown, you know, you, you know, part of that actually was uh, worker sabotage was another thing behind a lot of that. Um, the, the workforce did not like the introduction of all the automation. They saw some of the writing on the wall where that was going. And they also saw, you know, they had a pretty sweet deal. There were, uh, you know, there's a reason why if you go to most of these old factory towns, the, uh, in the old factory district, there's uh, at least several strip clubs still there. Um, and that's because guys went to them on the clock. Um, that's where a lot of the money went. Some of these things that the um, that the factories were doing, you know, they they push in and they'd run with what they thought was a good idea, what they thought the American people wanted, um, and what they thought would make them competitive. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's what what people actually wanted. Um, you know, they still fight that a lot. Um, and some of that, you know, you look at some of the sales figures that are coming out and they're making cars that don't sell um, and people don't care about. And that's a huge waste of money. You know, the for every car, there's just massive capital investment everywhere. Um, the big three and every every supplier company is used to the idea that to get something off the ground, you have to dump boatloads of money into, into a project. And then two, three years down the road, you have to figure out how to make it save money. So you're going to dump more millions of dollars to figure out how to save $3 per part. <laughs> and because over the span of the amount of units you're making, you'll actually make that money back and that's a big savings that's a big profit but the when you look at the finances for any of these companies in the automotive sector uh the numbers are just crazy so it's really easy for uh you know the big three to just not even bat an eye at some of these numbers to just go okay if that's what it costs you know, when they switch over a factory, they bring in um, construction equipment to push over the old line equipment into dumpsters and then go in and build new ones because it's cheaper with how much faster it is just to destroy it and scrap everything. Do you think that uh, maybe a, a wider problem, too, with the automotive industry would be sort of the larger and larger introduction of microelectronics into cars, uh, you know, regulating engine temperature to sort of onboard uh, small computers that provide, uh, you know, like a graphical interface and all that. Do you think that that has made the production process more complicated and, and kind of 
made the electrical engineering overly complicated and led to higher costs? Or do you think that that's actually been sort of a, a good thing, which is uh, sort of giving the consumer all of these extra bells and whistles, even if it you know uh, creates kind of a larger problem for production? Well, the bells and whistles are things that people keep saying they want, right? But, um, Ford just did a bunch of market research for their new F-150, and the one bit of feedback they got from almost everyone they talked to that actually uses the, you know, the uh, people that use trucks for work um, was they said they wanted manual controls. They didn't want to have to go through six different screens to be able to change the volume on the radio or right. turn C. So there's how much do people want? Well, you know, that's that's the question. Now, there, the reality is, is that um, none of the manufacturers are manufacturing their own touchscreens. Um, there, a lot of these components are provided by uh, supplier companies. Um, huge amounts of the components on cars are provided by supplier companies. Um, so there is, it's actually not that expensive for companies like GM. I mean, um, you know, by putting this touchscreen in, they don't have to design a physical radio that fits in a single or a double DIN slot and make it actually match their fit and finish or whatever. They need to come up with a bezel for a screen that's a certain size that they're specking, and they're shopping that around to different um, manufacturers of touchscreen systems. Um, now, there's a lot of um, software engineering um, going into the back end to get their um, whatever fancy um, dash display that they're talking about, but I don't. But uh, that doesn't seem to be a more expensive proposition for them. And in fact, that's where they can really get a lot of the premium dollars. Because if you're looking at a new car and the you're looking at two models that are sitting beside each other, and one of them has an 8-inch screen in the dash, and the other has a 12-inch screen in the dash, and the cost difference isn't really that much when you look at it on your monthly payment, but it's a huge deal for the manufacturer and how much money they actually get. Why does it take so much to design and prototype and then finally begin mass producing a car? I mean, I've heard development costs for average modern cars like a billion dollars. What goes into that? Well, there's, um, you know, the, the it obviously starts with uh, the drawings and you know, a lot of theoretical model work. Um, there's some pretty powerful computer systems that all of the manufacturers are using to be able to plot this stuff out. Then they're making their models. Um, and when I mean models, I mean literally they make uh, clay models first that they'll run through wind tunnels and then wood models that they're running through wind tunnels and they're checking everything, making their design changes and feedbacks and all of that. And when they get to actually, um, you know, working on the actual powertrain systems, you know, this is something that takes that's years in advance. Um, and a lot of these, a lot of the parts in this are done in partnerships 
with other companies. Um, at this point, I think the majority of Chrysler's transmissions are designed by ZF, which is a German American uh, German company, but most of the, the they have an American outfit too. Um, but and you know you you look at they're using rear ends from who knows Dana or whoever and a uh, differential from uh, Borg Warner and you know the turbo systems and all of these different projects have um, significant lead times, lots, you know, a lot of meetings, a lot of people involved in this. And then one of the big real cost things is the testing. Um, you know, every major component in there is going to have a significant amount of testing. Um, if, if it's a component that comes in contact with oil, it's going to be soaked in oil for what's deemed to be um, an equivalent of the lifespan of that part. And, and that's just, it's just going to sit there. There are going to be parts that are uh, put into thermal chambers, both hot and cold. And then there'll be some chambers that go from hot to cold for the life of the part, uh, both operationally and statically. Um, there's also um, some interesting tests that they call shelf tests, which is literally they put a part on a shelf for however long and you know they test it at the beginning and then they pull it off and test it at the end just to make sure that it can sit on a shelf in a parts warehouse so that when you go to AutoZone and buy it it's going to be fine um but yeah there's and anything that they decide that is done during the prototyping phase and during the testing phase any changes that are made um anything that's now superseded is thrown away and scrapped um so uh, it's not like this is a cheap operation um when you look at you know a casting for um the transmission housing is fairly cheap uh when you actually you know when you're thinking about the cost of a car now it's a it's a decent amount of money to get that uh you know for each one the real money is in paying the casting plant to build the molds for that. And even to get to the point where you're ready to have a mold design that you like, that means that you're actually paying machinists to take giant blocks of aluminum or steel and mill that out. So there is a lot of weight that goes into development. Um, because the goal at this point is to put out really the best thing that you can. I mean, when you're doing testing, you can't, you know, everyone likes to say that, oh, man, if GM could make a car that, uh, that, that break down five miles after it went out of warranty, they'd love that. Well, I mean, in theory they would, but the reality is is that statistically if you have, if you're going to build enough cars that are going to go, go out that soon of warranty, you're going to have a whole lot of them that are going to go out within the warranty. So these vehicles are designed to actually go much further than that. Um you know, we've really seen the uh, Hyundai really pushed the idea of these long-term warranties and pushing that out. Um, now, they did that to, you know, clear their name from the thought that they had quality issues. But um, that really became something that everyone else had to do. Um, you know, recently in the uh, 
in the drive for more efficient vehicles, we saw a lot of cars come up with these uh, start-stop starter motors, you know, where your car turns the engine off when you come up to a stop. Well, if you think about your starter motor, most people start the engine when they go to work, start the engine when they go to lunch, and start the engine when they come home. That's three starts a day. Well, uh, depending on what your commute is, if every time you come up to a stop sign or a stoplight, if the engine is shutting off, you're talking about, you know, a tenfold increase in the number of cycles. And when you magnify that times, you know, just the warranty period, you you essentially just had to make a starter that lasts ten times long. And you you don't get to charge ten times as much for it. So that was a real big thing. I know some guys that were involved. Well, I know, I know Ford, uh, their F-150 does that. And I, like many guys who like to, uh, you know, wrench on vehicles, uh, intuitively doesn't trust that. I mean, you, you wear out bearings, you, you wear out uh, components when you put them through cycles. And as you just said, increasing it by an order of magnitude doesn't give me a lot of confidence in the reliability of that. But, you know, they've obviously invested, uh, you know, their name on this, uh, this design. And uh, I, I would be very, you know, interested to know why they made that decision and how they made that, uh, that work, because it is impressive if it actually does work. Well, if you uh, disable the uh, start-stop feature, that starter is going to last forever because it was designed to go 10 times as long. So um, you can take that one for whatever it's worth. But, you know, that the how they did it was a lot of cursing. Um, because you think about it, and um, a starter motor is, it's a brushed motor. They're, um, and the brushes themselves wear and create um, dust. Uh, actually conductive dust that gets into the motor itself. So you're putting even bigger um, brushes in there and you're going to get all this material in there. So you have to get it so that you can clear that out. Uh, and that's done with, you know, different companies are doing it different ways. But, you know, it's putting, uh, generating some sort of an airflow path um, with the motion of the starter um to clear that out but at the same time you also have to be careful how you do that because if you get you know water splash in there well then you're going to short the thing out anyway so uh yeah it's these things aren't they aren't simple problems uh what might seem like a simple problem people say oh yeah it'd be great you just shut the engine off when you come to a start or when you come to a stop sign um that's that's a big deal. That caught, I mean, there were people that were working full-time on that for years. You know, that's why these things are expensive. That's why cars are so expensive, is that there are people that were messing with that. Um, and, you know, the, there are new designs happening for this all the time. Now, I know that um, in the companies that do, you know, starters and alternators, there's been not as much development because they aren't seeing there to be as much future, at least on the light duty side, for starters and alternators. Um, you know, the big expectation is the movement to um, hybrid systems on every car. 
or electrics. I mean, you know, if you look at the uh, the trucking industry, for example, uh, a lot of the, especially the, the smaller smaller time companies, they're ver- they're afraid to invest in in new vehicles because they feel like if they if they make a bet on an internal combustion engine or a diesel engine, uh, and electrics start really outcompeting them in the near term future, they uh, they might have just wasted all their money. And so, you know, with electrification in the uh, the passenger car market with Tesla and all the uh, various other companies and Nikola and uh, there's a few others. Um, and, and obviously also the, the larger ones um, are, are trying to get into it as well. It seems like, you know, if you're stuck there as a supplier of starter motors that essentially kickstart the, uh, the internal combustion process off uh, from a standstill, uh, you're sort of a in a bad place. Like you, you just run out the uh, the the already paid for uh, fixed costs and just enjoy the ride while it still lasts. Or do you actually invest in new equipment and design and engineering and hopefully somehow compete in this electrical space? I that's a tough one. Yeah, I, I don't know. Well, all of the big players for uh, you know starters and alternators. Um, they're also the big players for uh, hybrids, so they they definitely are um, hedging their bets a little bit. But when you say hybrid, are you including the electrical, all hundred percent electrical vehicles? Um, yeah, sure. Why not? Um, you know, the the reality is is that the large high voltage traction motors are the same for hybrids and for full electrics. Um, it's just really about how much power does this car need, which size that you go with on that. Now, um, where some of the interesting stuff for the hybrid is, is for you know the 48-volt mild hybrid stuff that they're talking about. And because the reality is, is that's a machine that's designed to not just um, give you some hybrid abilities, um, you know, power to pass kind of, uh, thing, but also to replace your starter and your alternator, um, which is going to be a bit of a bear for um, owners in the long run, because when one goes out, they just both went out because it's the same piece of equipment, um, and it's probably going to be more expensive than either, um, but it makes financial sense for the manufacturers, and it helps them hit their efficiency numbers that the government is insisting on. So, and, you know, everyone wants to uh, have that little hybrid symbol on the back of their car and feel pretty smug. So, so some of the technologies that have been developed in the past uh, 20 years, I'd say, have been quite, uh, quite interesting in the potential to have some groundbreaking ramifications for not only the automotive industry, but also society as a whole. Um, if you look at the entire electrification thing, obviously that strips out the need necessarily for a, a large chunk of the petroleum industry, which has historically been a major part of geopolitics, if uh, if only uh, domestic politics. And the, um, the technologies that have been sort of debated have been kind of interesting to me because fuel cells had kind of a big, big push back during the Bush administration 
to a to a degree, at least the industry was pushing for them, if not the administration. The administration, I also remember pushing for ethanol, which was this energy substitute, domestically grown corn-based ethanol, uh, that would somewhat limit the need for some of the foreign interventions, arguably overseas, uh, that require having a stable flow of oil coming from traditionally unstable parts of the world, uh, like the Middle East. Uh, but it seems like electrification has, has taken the lead, pretty much unquestionably. Hybrids were also part of it for a little bit, but they seem to have fallen away, in the sense of a hybrid being the uh, the small electric motor system in the vehicle, the Toyota, Toyota Prius being the most famous, uh, arguably, and having also a, a small uh, internal combustion engine uh, alongside that uh, to accommodate for certain periods where you're going to need uh, additional power. So typically the, uh, the electric motor in the hybrid system is used for uh, getting off a start very quickly or for short runs, and then once it it, uh, it diminishes its electric charge, uh, I think the, the gasoline engine turns on. Uh, but that's sort of an interim thing if you are ultimately worried about uh, simply running out of oil, if not just the environmental impact of burning oil. Uh, but in your view, Mike, how has electrification really sort of gotten out front of all the others and sort of stole the race, uh, it would seem, at the moment. Well, it got out mainly due to marketing. Um, and that's not to, like, you know, just be flippant about it, but, you know, the reality is is that our current battery technology gives you about 160 watt hours for every kilogram of battery weight. With gasoline, you have over 13,000 watt hours for every kilogram of fuel weight. Your electrics just aren't efficient. Um, they're actually, uh, and in fact, um, all these other technologies, different fuel cells, um, CNG, LPG, uh, all of them, they are less efficient per weight than gas and diesel. Um, and that's you know, that's how it is. Um, and in fact, actually, if, um, you know, ethanol, ethanol production really isn't efficient either. It's mainly a subsidy program for the farming industry and to make people feel better. Um, it works. Well, I, I would add it's an energy independence initiative, if nothing else. I would agree with you, though. It's not a very energy efficient process. Uh, but what it does give you is if you were cut off from a foreign supplier of oil, you would have some, um, some domestic production capability regardless that could be diverted to military uses, if nothing else. Yeah, and, you know, the, uh, the ethanol industry itself is expanding. Um, I know of at least one new uh either new or expanded plant that poet is put uh poet is putting in which means that the ethanol industry is banking on the continuation of ethanol based fuels which means that they are banking on the continuation of petroleum fuels because e100 is not a very good option and not a lot of stuff is really set up for it right now um i think that we are going to see um, you know, you said that 
um, hybrids have kind of fallen by the wayside. But the reality is, is that hybrids are probably actually what is going to take the leading role in the not too distant future. Um, you know, if you look at the sales figures, it's something it's it's less than five percent of what the hybrids and full electrics make up of global sales. And I think almost half of those are sold in China. So the other half of the global sales are for the rest of the world. People aren't buying these things. Um, seven out of the 10 best-selling cars in America are trucks and have been for years. We, we just aren't put like... We are not buying these things. Ford just invested a lot of money to come out with a new 7.3 giant gas V8 that doesn't have cylinder deactivation, it doesn't have variable valve timing, and it doesn't have any of the fuel efficiency nonsense. It is a dead nuts reliable giant gas engine that burns as much fuel as you want to pour into it. Um, now... They're also on the other side making um, the new hybrid F-150 and are saying that in two years they're going to have a full electric version for anybody that actually wants it. But And they will likely, at some point, put a hybrid system on that giant gas V8. Um, and I think that's something that, that we're actually going to see. Um, we're just, you know, the fuel cell tech isn't going anywhere because of the massive infrastructure issues. Um, but full electric can't really go anywhere because of the infrastructure issues. Um, California has problems right now when people come home at 5 p.m. and turn on their air conditioning. Imagine everyone in California comes home at 5 p.m. and plugs in their car and turns on their air conditioning. This is... the our grid system isn't capable right now. Um, and some of the, you know, there, there are questions about whether or not there's even enough material to make enough batteries just to get the U.S. to switch. That's why there are articles constantly coming out about, well, this new type of battery technology that's just around the corner is going to change everything and that's what we've been hearing for years you know the on the hybrid and electric side those guys have had motors that are have insane efficiency levels for a decade but the efficiency levels of the batteries makes it so that nobody cares um every time gas clicks over three dollars a gallon the big three go and call up you know, the hybrid manufacturers and say, what do you got for me? And they start dumping money into programs. But when the gas prices drop back down to, you know, around $2 a gallon, they just kind of lose interest again because it, it's not that big a deal. Um, our, so I think that we're going to use hybrids to stretch our oil supply for a long time. And our you know, our petroleum engineers are getting really good and they'll figure out how to stretch it even more. Um, it used to be that diesel was really cheap. It was really cheap because to make as much gasoline as we needed, you always got a certain amount of diesel fuel, too. So it was a subsidized fuel, basically. 
um, we've been able to fine tune that refining process and <clears throat> to the point now where they can get more gasoline out of a barrel of oil than they used to be able to. Whereas you look at Europe and their gas and diesel prices are completely different because their refining process is more tuned to getting more diesel out of a barrel of oil than gasoline. So I think that our petroleum engineers are going to get better. We'll probably keep shoving corn into our gas tanks, and uh, we're going to throw a hybrid on every car. Well, it, just uh, if you'll indulge me for a moment, I have a question about the distillation technologies. I, I didn't know that the the Europeans had, had tuned their refineries actually to increase the proportion of diesel output from the crude oil that they have to distill. Um, I, I am aware that the distillation process produces various grades or types of hydrocarbons, diesel being one of them, but also gasoline, um, kerosene, uh, naphtha. There's a whole range. And basically it's just how do these different complex hydrocarbon molecular chains cool down and return to a liquid form once they've been boiled at the, uh, at the crude oil state. But is it even possible to actually produce pure diesel or uh, gasoline or whatever derivative of uh, crude oil you want based upon some distillation technology? I thought it was you, you could maybe screw around on the margins, but you're ultimately going to be restricted by what those molecular chains are originally composed of. That, that sort of happened through the natural processes of, of oil being made, but the um, I didn't know there was a, an artificial way to uh, to actually allocate different types of distillates. Uh, do you know what uh, you know what to what degree you can do that? I, I'm, I'm quite curious about this because diesel is is a great technology. I mean, it's like super efficient, uh, and that's why the trucks all run on it. Um, so, and, and the other question is like, how come the Americans haven't done it? If the Europeans have thought it's um, such a good idea. Well. I'm not a petroleum engineer, um, and I had this conversation with a petroleum engineer, and he quickly started talking way above my uh, my head. So I'm kind of going off of that, and it, but it mainly is the from my understanding the screwing around in the margins. But you know, um, as our technology has improved, they're able to play with those margins a little bit more. Um, as far as you know, it, you know the cost, um, the cost issues on some of these things. When you, uh, you know, diesel used to be cheaper because we had to make so much gasoline, and you'd always just have that off. Uh, that's actually what really caused the big rise in, you know, people saying, "Oh yeah, man, a diesel. That's the that's the way to go." But um, as they've gotten better and better, um, they're playing with some of that, and I think that. Um, I, I, you know, the, these guys are pretty smart, um, but there's still a lot of work to be done. You know, we've just recently gotten to the point where we can make synthetic oil feedstocks and refine them to mimic whale oil. We're just now getting to the point to be able to use petroleum to make a synthetic version of whale oil. Um, that's... The, so, the sorry, is there is there a great need for uh, 
whale oil at, at the moment, or is this just sort of a kind of like a science paper that you know was uh, bragging rights for the researcher that did it? Well, whale oil was, was like predominantly used and still is somewhat used, I think, in experimental format by NASA or various space shuttle missions. It, well into the 90s, it was used in production, I guess you could say. Um, I don't know if it's used anymore for primary NASA projects or primary space projects, but it did have industrial usage as late as the 1990s. But I don't, a, I don't know if they're really using it much anymore. No, it's, it's a really good oil. In fact, um, so an anecdote from somewhere else, um, you know, everyone talks about how 1911s are unreliable trash these days. Well, if you go back to the original test specs, that uh, John Moses Browning submitted to the Army, you know, he specified to use whale oil. And when we try to replicate that with modern, with most modern gun lubes, uh, the guns are trash and they're completely unreliable. But if you slap whale oil or even some of these new synthetic versions of that in there, and they start running great again, because it was a better oil for that machine and for those applications. Now, we probably don't necessarily need. Uh, a synthetic version of whale oil because we know what uh, we, we can design around that since we don't have that. Um, and we can design our um, our grease packages to use uh, different um, oil formulations now. But that's, that is just an example of um, where the oil industry is. Um, we're coming up and we're, we're trying to recreate things that we had before that we've lost because of, um, well, poor management and government regulations. Um, and we're going to continue to do that in the future in all manufacturing industries and in all development industries. We're always going to have to be pushing because of we don't know necessarily what our bad practices now. Um, we'll find out in 10 years that what we're doing now is the worst thing in the world. And so we'll have to completely change our industry and completely change what we're doing. But, you know, a big thing is always going to be figuring out what the next step is and how to make it work and how to make that work with legacy equipment and legacy design. So what do you think the, the biggest challenges uh, facing the industry are today and as well as the opportunities uh, I mean, the, the sort of past uh, 50 years, at least, have been the story of globalization and bringing the industrialized world to the in, unindustrialized world. Uh, but with countries like China now surpassing the United States in terms of overall production by a factor of almost three, uh, I don't know if there's much more growth in terms of the, the annual sales. Uh, and also with that increased amount of usage, you do have a tremendous amount of uh, resource depletion going on. And if, um, if again, if not for environmental reasons, uh, if only for sustainability reasons, uh, the electrification of the automotive industry seems inevitable. Uh, so aside from that, maybe we, if you want to talk about uh, autonomous vehicles or anything, where do you see the uh, challenges and opportunities? Well, the big challenge for autonomous vehicles is still going to be for the lawyers. It's figuring out who's liable. Um, 
you know, I think both GM and Ford have said that uh, they have designs that they feel could work, but they want to insist that the owner is financially liable for any accidents or problems. Whereas, um, you know, the guys in the tech industry that have been playing around with this concept, they're willing to say, oh, no, the manufacturer should be liable for any problems. So as long as that's at loggerheads, I don't I don't know how we're going to get autonomous vehicles out, <clears throat> but we're going to continue to expand in the realm of driver's aids for that technology. Um, and that's, you know, these smart cruise control systems, these uh, blind spot monitoring systems, all of these things are going to be little gadgets and gizmos that are going to cause more and more rises in the cost of a vehicle. Um, and we're going to have to figure out how to make these cars that are going to have continuous improvement costs built into them affordable in a nation with a relatively um, flat wage system. Um, that's going to be one of the big challenges. Um, you know, Henry Ford was saying, was famous for saying that uh, he wanted to build a car that his workers could afford. And he approached that two ways. One was to make more budget-oriented cars, but it was also to ensure that his workers were paid a better wage. With the increase in globalization, we really see a lot of pushback on those wages. Um, the automotive industry has struggled a long time, not necessarily with wages, but with the support costs of those workers, the insurance costs, the pension costs. Um, right now, some of these factories have up to 20% contractors working at them just so they can save some of those back-end costs. And so they can take their time in figuring out which one of those contractors they want to hire and are worth investing the company's money into. It's kind of a big deal. Uh, there's also a big push right now in bringing new factories home. Um, part of that is uh, a lot of the pushes that Trump has made. Um, but there have been a lot of rumblings about that in the industry rags and uh, around company watering holes for a while. Um, design teams and engineers and test guys really like having the factory within driving distance so that if there's a problem, they can go there and they can fix it versus having to fly to China and stay there for six weeks and to six months sometimes and talking through translators to try to debug an issue with workers that don't seem that interested. Chrysler actually was before the uh, before the upset with the the coronavirus here. Um, they were actually actively working on bringing more truck manufacturing back to the U.S. A lot of those plans are on hold right now because nobody knows where things are going. You know, we've seen a drastic drop in sales figures uh, for 2020. Um, a big portion of that has been 
with fleet sales. And that's a huge section of the sales figure. Um, and then while we also had factories shut down, everybody that was sitting at home went out and started shopping for cars. So you had dealerships that didn't have anything on the lot. So we're at a really weird point right now. And trying to figure out what's coming in the future is something that everyone is working on. In 2019, GM had a big strike, and that really impacted some of their production figures, which in turn affects their sales. Chrysler's working on um, a merger now with uh, Peugeot, and that will put them at, I think, the fourth largest auto group in the world when that goes through. Ford has cut all manufacturing of vehicles except trucks and SUVs because they're trying to streamline and sell what people want to buy. We're not really sure which way is the right way to go. Well, the automotive industry I was reading is, is, uh, I guess, globally, but predominantly within North America is, uh, I think, in 2019, did like well over $100 billion worth of just R&D and actually outpaced pretty much every other major industry on the planet in terms of collective R&D. But if you look into what that R&D primarily is focused on, it's focused on a lot of the things you're saying they, they ought not to be even they not ought not to be focusing on or are just foolhardy fuel cells, electric vehicles, new battery technology, automated vehicle transitioning, uh, you know, um, basically new propulsion systems that are just improved propulsion systems to try and squeeze the fuel efficiency so that the petrochemical engineers can catch up. You know, I, I get the impression that the majority of the innovation is either in these broad areas that uh, aren't really helping with anything. Uh, there's also the idea of uh, autonomous vehicles becoming more popular and a lot of R&Ds going into that. Something like, you know, uh, there's one poll that was cited by like the Auto Alliance uh, group and they were like that over 40% of American consumers would be interested in an uh, autonomous car. Uh, or uh, something like that, uh, and they cite these things like, "Oh, we're we're doing uh, innovation into nanotubes for fuel systems, or we're doing uh, nano composites for bumpers, or we're using uh, some of this old NASA technology like aerogel, or we're trying to use Gorilla Glass or certain things." And they kind of go into all these niche innovations that are being built in the cars. And as you say, the, no, one, no one's really buying these cars. A lot of them are strictly becoming more expensive and, and, and more complex. They're requiring a more and more complicated global supply chain to even manufacture. Um, is it possible that the majority of the new cars and new innovations going into the car market are going to effectively make cars a luxury item for a lot of people? Uh, and, and the cars that people will buy will sort of decline in their bells and whistles and become just far more functional. They'll all become basically work trucks. And if you're not buying it for a work truck and you're not buying it for the expensive innovations and the all the you know materials engineering that goes into it and all the fuel cell efficiency that goes into it, 
it doesn't really work as you say, then you're not going to buy a car. You're, you kind of fall into one of those three groups. Well, to, to build off of that real quick, I, I know personally, and I've also heard many cases of this, where people living in urban environments, I mean, now everything's off the table, uh, but you know, if you live in New York, you don't really need a car. And that sort of lifestyle has become much more popular with digital digital communications and effectively people working on their laptops instead of having to commute to an office. Uh, so the commuter car seems to be certainly less uh, useful, uh, and I would uh, I would just I would just wonder what the the conversations are happening at the automotive makers uh, regarding that. Well, the average age of vehicles on the road has increased over the last several years, from eleven point two years. Uh, old to 11.9 years old people are keeping vehicles longer um we're also seeing the new vehicles that are sold um a big portion of those are the mid-grade vehicles but when you look at some of these mid-grade vehicles you're getting a lot of bang for your buck when you compare them to the technology level that you would have been able to get 10 or 20 years ago so there's there's something to be said there about what's going to happen with with cars and personal ownership but at the same time with the way most of America is uh when you look at where the jobs are located and where people live um not owning a car is not an option for most Americans. Maybe if you live in New York City, yeah. Uh, even in a lot of the actual cities throughout the country, um, if you live within town and you work within town, there are probably ways you can work around that. But, you know, if I lived in Minneapolis, I don't think I would want to count on biking to work in February. So the option of a car is always something that's there now with vehicles that last longer um, and engines that are more reliable I think that the average age of vehicles on the road is only going to increase and it'll become more of an option for people to buy used cars uh, versus new cars the only question is will these will the new cars coming out continue to be these ugly monstrosities that some of the companies are putting out today well i, I this has been a pet peeve of mine for years i i do not understand why american manufacturers in particular have a hard time making a good looking car they did a great job in the 60s and after that they've just been a train wreck if you ask me so people will make these excuses like oh well the environmental regulations and the safety regulations have made it hard or impossible to make a cool looking car. And I'm like, well, why do the foreign makers then manage it? So I'm not convinced that those, you know, qualities are inherently foreign. It's just something seemed to happen to the culture or, or talent, frankly, at American companies. So I, I'd like to hear your insights on that. I mean, I was just looking at a new Civic the other day and I thought it really looked ugly. So, um, I'm not sure if they're the ones that are uh, really 
on the peak of the design edge. The Europeans really are, have been able to come up with a good balance between modernism with uh, that tinge of timeless style or what have you. Um, I don't know. I think one of the big reasons why American companies don't design cars is because American companies don't care about most cars today. They care about trucks, SUVs, and large sedans that they can use for fleet sales, primarily to cops and to sports cars. That is where the engineers that work for the OEMs, any engineer with any clout or tenure is going to get himself attached to one of those projects because it's something that they can hang their hat on because that's something that people actually care about. No one cares about the latest economy car, um, at least not as far as American car buyers are concerned uh, or the ones that buy from American companies. People who want economy cars are still going to go to Toyota every time. And, you know, once once GM and Ford and Chrysler figured that out, they were able to save a lot of money by not investing those things. You know, they each took different strategies of how to deal with that problem. But, you know, they're focused on what sells for them and what they want to work on and what people want to buy. Uh, 